The book of Matthew, chapter 3, verse 1. In those days, John the Baptist came to the Judean wilderness and began preaching. His message was, Repent of your sins and turn to God, for the kingdom of heaven is near. The prophet Isaiah was speaking about John when he said, He is a voice shouting in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord for the Lord's coming. Clear the road for him. Well, John's clothes were woven from coarse camel hair, and he wore a leather belt around his waist. And for food, he ate locust and wild honey. People from Jerusalem and all Judea and all over the Jordan Valley went out to see and hear John. And when they confessed their sins, John baptized them in the Jordan River. Would you pray with me, please? Father dear, how precious to be here with the community of believers. How sweet to sing songs of glory and praise and love to you. Thank you, Lord, that here we, here we are getting to listen every Sunday to the people behind us who prepare and sing so mightily of your power, so sweetly of your love, so truthfully to us. I pray what is done and said in this place this morning will be a sweet aroma to you. We love you, Lord, and we just bow down in your presence and say, holy, 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 you are Lord God of hosts. Thank you for the cross, dear one. We will not forget. In your holy name we all pray. Amen, dear Amen. one. Amen. Thank you, dear Ruthie. Thank you, honey. I love you, baby. Matthew chapter 3, verse 1. Matthew chapter 3, verse 1. Now in those days, John the Baptist came, preaching in the wilderness of Judea, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. John's purpose was to start gathering together people who'd kind of become a little lax in their commitment to God, folks who weren't as walking close to the Lord as they once were. And his job was to call them back that now it was time to be subject to the king, the king of the kingdom was coming. And John felt he deserved respect. And we believers have only one king, and his name is Jesus. And since Jesus is our king, he is our boss. Now let me say that again. Since Jesus is our king, he is our boss. He is the one we will stand before someday, we will give an account to, our lives will be revealed to us in his presence. Christianity is not a make-it-up-as-you-go religion. We who are the subjects of the king, we cannot change the rules. See, unbelievers, they look at Christianity, and we disagree with them about some social issue. There's something in the culture that we're talking about that they disagree with. They think that we should adjust our faith, that we can bend a little bit. That's not true. And then when we do not bend to satisfy their demands, they get, it, they get upset with us. 
as if what's wrong with us? What, what did we do wrong? They don't understand. The kingdom of God is not a democracy. It is not a republic. It's not an oligarchy. It's not an anarchy. It is a monarchy. It is ruled by a kind, benevolent king who is ever on the march to regain what he originally had. God meant for us to be gods of this world. Little g, gods of this world. He created the world and then he gave us dominion. We were to rule the world as his deputies. We were here. This was our world. This was our kingdom. We had it. God gave it to us and said, you now have dominion. But instead of fulfilling our role as little gods, we decided that we wanted to be something bigger than that. And so we decided to carve out our own destiny. And the result was that we gave this world to a different god. His name is Satan. 2 Corinthians 4.4 4 definitely tells us, there's no doubt about it, Satan is the God, little g, of this world. You had God, the big G, who meant for us to be the God's little g of the world. We were to have dominion as his deputies, but instead, we invited somebody else to take over the world. And so the world ground on in discord, and finally, with Abraham, God drove a stake in the ground and said, I'm going to take my kingdom back. And beginning with Abraham, the kingdom of God began a full assault on the kingdom of the devil. And the history of the world is the story of the battle between those two kingdoms. Years ago, I had a man who maybe is the most brilliant person that I've ever known that I led to Christ. He would sit right up here on the balcony to my left. He was not a believer. Many people in the city knew who he was. He'd sit right there. And he would come week after week after week. And finally one day, I was talking to him. He'd given his life to Christ. And he said, Pastor, I remember the moment when I put my faith in Jesus sitting right up there. He said, my brain started going click, 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 click. I understood for the first time in my lifetime. This was the most brilliant man I ever knew. He said, for the first time, I understood history, I understood God, I understood humans, I understood what was happening in the world. You see, you have no explanation for what's happening in the world, apart from the fact that God made it to be good and made us to be the little gods. That's why we have such amazing capabilities. That's why we can do such marvelous things. And yet here we are, the same creatures that can become a Hitler. They can do the worst things. How do you explain that? How, how do you explain the movement of history? How do you explain how sometimes good wins, but other times bad wins? Until you understand Christianity, until you understand the Bible, you are clueless as to how, why the world is the way it is. But when you read the Bible and you, you get the story, we were meant to rule. That's why sometimes we do really good. We were meant to be the bosses. We were meant to do great things. We were given dominion. But then we invited another God who took over. And now the story of humanity is the story of one kingdom 
God's kingdom trying to reclaim from Satan his rightful kingdom. And the battle was going to reach its apex when God himself is going to send the king of the kingdom that was supposed to exist, the kingdom from heaven, the kingdom God meant for us to have. And so God prepared the world in its struggle, waiting for that moment when the king would come that was meant to be the king. And so God said, he will be a priest like Melchizedek. That's the priest that Abraham honored. He will be a prophet like Moses. The Jews would say the greatest human who had ever lived. And he will be a king like David, their favorite king. And so God said, the battle is engaged. Here we are. The warfare has begun. But there's coming a day when we're going to send the rightful king, priest, prophet, king. And now he's coming. And John the Baptist has been chosen to make the world ready for when the one who is now coming, that the world was meant to have as its king. Now, verse 3. Verse 3. For this is the one referred to by Isaiah the prophet when he said, The voice of one calling out in the wilderness, or as most translations say, crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. And make his paths straight. The purpose of John the Baptist crying out was to urge people to prepare themselves so that there could be a good runway for Jesus to land on. Whenever a king came to visit an area, one of the most important things the city had to do was fill up the potholes. They had to go out and fix up the roads. You, you, you have... If you didn't fix up the roads, you could break an axle on a chariot. You could break the legs of horses. You, you, you had to get it ready. You have rocks protruding out of the ground. So before any king would come to a town, the town for miles in every direction, they'd be clearing out the road. I, I learned the value of road repair in Central America. In Central America, the roads will beat you to death. Uh, people stand on the side of the road and if you'll throw money out, they will put a little bit in the pothole to make it easier for you to go across. So you keep hoping that you can find a place where you can go around without having to literally, you look around and say, you've got you to pay somebody. They're standing here with their shovels. I've always wondered if you went around in the corner if they threw this, took the stuff back out of the holes. But, but anyway, in Central America, I learned the value of road repair. In East Africa, Ruthie and I went to East Africa on mission. In East Africa, the potholes were so large, she's my witness, that the potholes were so large that your whole vehicle would go down into them and then come back up. There was one hole, the worst pothole I was ever in in my life. As we went down in the pothole, I looked to my left and I could see the ground level. I was at ground level. That's how far down we went. Then we came back up. Now that's what John is dealing with. Everything's a mess. Israel is in trouble. These are bad times. And his job is to prepare the road, to clear the obstacles in people's hearts so that they can receive Jesus with honor. Now, verse 4. Now, John himself had a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist. Well, there you have it. That's not a three-piece suit for sure. 
Jesus said, folks, do you remember this? Jesus said that John did not wear nice clothes. You remember that? Our master slam dunked John. Said the guy dresses like a slob. He didn't say it that way, but that's what he's saying. He's saying, remember, he said, what did you go out to, when you went out to hear John preach, were you going out to see a man with soft clothing, with nice clothes on? No. John did not dress like the other religious people of his day dressed. His dress was odd. In fact, it was downright startling. He didn't look like the other religious leaders. They loved their riches. In Jesus' day, they were health and wealth people. Pharisees and Sadducees, you proved that God loved you and God was special to you because you were rich. And so the religious leaders, they showed off their riches and they wore gaudy robes, prim and proper. Everything was just beautiful. Whereas John's out in the middle of a river preaching with drab and dull clothing on. And his clothing matched his stern preaching. He was different in a lot of ways. Now, folks, listen to me. Stay with me right now. Stay with me. This is one of the reasons he was so appealing. The more self-indulgent a society becomes like ours, the more self-indulgent a society becomes, the more it is fascinated by self-denial. It is totally taken off guard. If people know that you tithe, they'll think you're crazy. If you're a generous person who gives and gives and gives, you'll stand out in the crowd. The contrast will be overwhelming. If you have people in your home Always remember, Christianity was born, birthed for 300 years in homes. We had no buildings, 300 years. Homes. Don't ever forget, your house is the most valuable thing materially that you own. Have you yielded to the Lord? Or is your house totally a castle for you and your comfort? Do you have people in your home? Do you have the saints do you have that person you see every Sunday who's struggling, who's lonely? You see, see, we've become more like the culture than like what Christians are supposed to be. And when we become like Christians are supposed to be, we stand out. The world has just told us, done. The world says, I don't get that. It was the contrast that captured the attention of the world. It wasn't how much John was like the world. It wasn't how similar he was to the world. What made John great was how different he was from the world. Always remember that. As you look at lost people around you, they don't have people in their homes very often. Do you? They don't tithe. Do you? They're often not very generous. Are you? Now this outfit, the camel hair clothing with a leather belt, that was not original to John. This is the same outfit that Elijah wore in the Old Testament. You can read about it in 2 Kings chapter 1. John the Baptist had a hero. and His name was Elijah. The man who preached hard to the king. The man who preached hard against sin. And so John the Baptist, for some reason, decided he's going to dress 
like Elijah, his hero. He, heroes impact us. I, for years, for years, I would say to people when I would say hi, I would not say hello. I would not say how are you. I would say, say hey, say hey, because one of my heroes growing up was Willie Mays. Willie Mays, the great baseball player. His nickname was the Say Hey Kid. Everybody, he said, say hey, say hey. Well, I wanted to be like Willie Mays, so I say hey. By the way, it did not help. My number one hero growing up, number one, nobody else even close, was Mickey Mantle. Great ball player, baseball player. I walked like Mickey. I ran like Mickey. I stood in the batter's box like Mickey. I did not hit like Mickey. <laughs> but who he was affected me. And then when I started preaching, I wanted to be like Billy Graham. All of us did. All of us young preachers. And for years, you could detect in my preaching a little bit of a North Carolina accent. It just come through, and I never had been to North Carolina. It just came through. Parents, parents, listen to me. Learn a lesson here. Heroes affect lives. Role models matter. The best thing you can do for your kids, number one, is to be a hero, to be a role model. Number one, to live a holy, godly life to live in your children's world, to talk to them, to understand what's going on, and to know who the famous people are in the culture, the people they're watching and listening to that are Christians. They're out there. There's C.J. Stroud, this quarterback for the Houston Texans, that NBC cut out, cut out his testimony for Jesus the other day in an interview. They just cut it out. He, he said... He said, football isn't the main thing for me. He said, knowing Jesus is the main thing. Playing football gives me a chance to promote Jesus. 22 years old. My. For me, some of them were Albert Pujols, Tim Tebow, Adam Wainwright. Know the people in your children's world. Find out who the Christians are. Promote them. And then, when you do have people in your home, when you invite Christians to come to your house, which you ought to be doing, when you have people come to your house, make sure you invite people that your children like. For you are bringing them into your house, not only to bless them, but you are bringing them so they can be role models and heroes for your children. John the Baptist, dressed like Elijah, his hero. Verse 4. Now John himself had a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts, as Ruthie says, yum, and wild honey. And at that time Jerusalem was going out to him. It does not say they came from Jerusalem. What does it say? It says Jerusalem, the whole city, came out to hear him, and all Judea and all the region around the Jordan. John the Baptist ate locusts. Now, folks, what I'm getting ready to tell you is the truth, the whole truth, nothing but the truth. Locusts is one of the healthiest foods you could ever eat. Amen. I'm going to trust that amen was an honest one. <laughs> it's high in protein, easy to prepare, easy to digest. All you do is rip off the head, legs, and wings. Then you stew, boil, roast, or bake the body, add a little salt and butter, and voila, it tastes like shrimp. 
I see that look on your face. You're saying, how does pastor know what locust tastes like? Aha! Uh -huh. I take other people's word for it. <laughs> but, but, be it known to you that I wanted to get some locusts and eat it as a sermon prop. I wanted to put it in a little bowl, sit over here, and put it in my mouth and eat it right here in front of you. This disgusted everyone I mentioned it to. And someone told me it's hard to find locusts because this not, we're not allowed to process locusts in the United States because of the fear, the danger of their swarming. I didn't know that. But the main reason that I did not try to get locusts and eat some for you was because I knew that my sweet babe, Babe Ruth, would not kiss me for a month if I did. <laughs> I understood that two months, I heard you. I heard it two months. You heard it two months, she said. Locusts and wild honey. John didn't go to the market very often, did he? He lived off the land. Now look at this preacher. Now look at this preacher. He lived in a barren desert instead of a nice, beautiful building. He had humble clothes instead of three-piece suits. Simple food instead of steak. He was a stark contrast to the greedy priests who would come out there and stand on the shore and watch him preach. His austere lifestyle, even though it was odd, it exposed the ugliness of their selfishness. He was a living protest against the selfish indulgence that was destroying the nation. It was what's killing the nation. It's what's destroying us. Don't talk about Democrats and Republicans. Don't, don't talk about rich and poor. Don't talk about immigrants and non-immigrants. The line between good and evil never goes between groups. The line between good and evil always goes right straight through every human heart. Right here. And what's killing us right now is a selfish sense of hyperindulgence. And longing for ourselves, our own rules. We want to do things we want to do. We don't want anybody telling us what to do. Our own stuff. We're going to vote. Many of you will vote in November. Not based on how you can help the poor or to show concern or compassion for the unborn or anybody else. You will vote how the economy is going because it pads your pocket. The country is awash in selfishness. And the reason everybody in Israel went down to hear John the Baptist preach is because there he stood in a wilderness eating locusts. And wild honey, preaching in a river. His whole life was a message. He was saying to the world, the spiritual is all that matters. Folks, do you understand? Folks, listen to me. Do you understand that the only thing in the world that really matters is the spiritual? Do you understand that all the people that you know are either going to go to heaven or hell someday? Do you understand that heaven is beautiful and hell is hot? Do you realize that the spiritual is all that matters here stood a man, even in his clothing and his food. He was saying the spiritual is what matters. He had no friends. He was not a socializer. He was a loner who existed for God alone. He lived alone. He died alone. If you wanted to hear him preach, you had to go find him out in the wilderness. He was totally independent of everybody on the planet except God. And he could not be bribed. 
Because the only thing in this world that he wanted was holiness. To walk with his God. To be true. To prepare a pathway for the king who is coming. It's hard to corrupt somebody who's content to live in a wilderness, wear camel hair and leather, and eat locusts and wild honey. Everything about him was a sermon. The wilderness, the words, the clothes, the food, and yes, even the river. He made a river preach. The Jordan River is no wider than, than this platform right here, most of it, right here. That's it. That's about it. But he made the river preach. Not saying that the river could save you, that baptism could save you. But he was saying, you got to change your life. you got to go down to an old life. you got to come up to a new life. Something had to change. Now let me drive the application home for you. Stay with me. The greatest definition of preaching I ever heard, I heard 45 years ago in seminary. It was Phillips Brooks. Phillips Brooks was the pastor that Helen Keller loved so much. Such a great man. Phillips Brooks defined preaching as persuasion through personality. Persuasion through personality. First of all, it's persuasion. When we preach, it ought to pack a wallop. And whenever God's truth is powerfully preached, something happens. If the pews are dead, you take it to the bank. Listen to me. If the pews are dead, it's because the pulpit died first. Right here is the summation of it all. John Wesley, one of the most important humans who ever lived, said of his preaching, I set myself on fire and people come to watch me burn. So it's persuasion. It's moving. Something's happening. And then through personality. That denotes a living human being. When people really believe that God is speaking to somebody, a human being, they're moved. Something happens to them. They sense it and they want it. And so they came. They came out to see John. Just looking at him was a call to repent. He was arresting their attention. And he pushed their message deep into their hearts with as many channels as possible. Now listen to me. Now listen to me. Listen to me. And that's exactly what it means to be a Christian. Some of you in this room, you have the same problem I do, and that is your greatest weakness is witnessing to lost people, letting lost people know that you're saved, talking to them about Jesus. I talked to you about that. Sometimes a preacher has to use his props and all the stuff that goes with it, but then sometimes he has to put himself in the cannon and fire himself. He must give it all, and that's what you have to do as a believer. You may not be able to talk. Maybe you're scared to. But you've got some camel's hair. You've got some locusts. You've got some wilderness experience. You've got some things you can do to where you can make sure that everybody around you knows that you're a believer. That everybody in your world knows that you're a Christ follower. You can put a bumper sticker on your car if you're a good driver. <laughs> if you drive fast, don't do it. I don't put them on my car because I'm a slow driver. I'm the slowest driver in Springfield. Proud of it. Don't you blow your horn at me when my schedule's under control and yours is not. <laughs> but very few of you should put a bumper sticker on your car. Today when you go out for lunch, 
And your server is standing right there beside you. You say to your spouse or the kids or whoever's with you, say, well, it was a great day in church, wasn't it? You make sure that the server hears you say church. And then you give a 20% tip or 25%. If you don't give a good tip after you go to church. Now, this is a joke. Why am I telling you it's a joke? Very good. If you do not leave a 20 to 25% tip today and they know you've gone to church because of the way you dress, the way you look, when they ask you who your pastor is, I want you to look them right square in the eye and say, Hosey Blue. <laughs> Don't get worked up. He and I have been doing that for 20 years to each other. It's all right. That's all right. One of the things I've noticed Christians have begun saying, have you noticed this? Are you catching this? It's brand new. Have a blessed day. My guess is that's come out of the assemblies of God somewhere. If I had to guess, probably John Lendl, James River, if I were just guessing. But I've noticed more and more, I'm hearing people say, have a blessed day. When I hear that, I know, hmm, okay, we've got a Christian here. We've got a believer. A teenager did that to me last night in the drive-thru. You can wear a logo on a shirt. You can put a little pocket New Testament on your desk or in your drawer so that it comes open and people see. You got some locusts. You got some camel's hair. You got a little wilderness in you. You can do this. You can, preach, you can put yourself in the can and, and give it all that you've got. You can have a book on prayer and just set it on your desk. And people walking by, they see it. You can wear Christian jewelry. You can wear a cross. I'm thinking about getting one myself. I'm 72 years old. I've never worn anything there of jewelry except for my wedding ring. But I've been thinking lately. I try to be kind to people. I do try to be generous. I do give good tips. I do, And you know I know my weaknesses. You all know that. No bragging going on here. You know I know me. There's sometimes I do something, and I know it's because Jesus in me. It's not me. Jesus in me. But I'm getting all the credit. And so I've been thinking about getting me a, a necklace with a cross on it. See, there are ways that we can do this. And this kind of thing matters to God. God told Jeremiah. God had Jeremiah go down and look at the potter's wheel. So he went down and looked at the potter's wheel. And he wrote down, he said, I went down to the potter's wheel. And God said, you know, that's the way Israel is. They're just my clay. I can do with them what I want to do. God said to Ezekiel, man, everybody was beating up on Ezekiel. Ezekiel said, I mean, God said, Ezekiel, I want you for 390 days. To lay down on your left side every day for 390 days. Ezekiel got up and he went out where the people were and he laid on his left side. Why? Because Israel had been sinning against God for 390 years. He could have told them that. They wouldn't have listened. Then when he got done with 390 days on his left side, do you remember what God told him to do? Lay 40 days on your right side to tell Judah of their sins for 40 years. God loves it when you let speechless things talk for you. Our master, the Lord Jesus, 
He not only said he loved children, what did he do? He took them up. He, he did something physical, something visible. He blessed them. He laid his hands on them. When they asked him, should you pay taxes? He didn't just say, yes, go pay taxes. He grabbed something, a coin. He said, look at the coin. The government gives you this money. Money is the government's. It belongs to the government. They make it. They produce it. Pay your taxes. When Moses said to God, am I going to go into the presence of Pharaoh and tell him to obey you? Why is he going to believe me? God said, well, we're, going, we're going to have a little physical time here. Throw your rod down. Threw his rod down, became a snake. He said, now pick it back up. Picked it back up, became a rod again. And then God said, stick your hand in your robe. He stuck his hand in his robe, became it had leprosy. Stuck it back in, it was healed. Then God said, now, the thing I want you to do is I want you to walk through the land and just take a little water and just pour it out and it'll turn to blood. And he did that on a massive scale when he got there. But see, what God was saying to these people and saying to us is, the spiritual is all that matters. Find ways, find subtle ways that you can, like John, send the message out. You can send the word out. I am a believer. I am a Christ follower. I love him. I know him. You use wordless things to do this. And that's what John did. And the people came from miles to hear him preach. I could say more, but I'm going to quit there. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes. Now, what's your locus? What's your wilderness? What's your barren Jordan River existence that would make you look different? Now, I'm not talking about bizarre stuff. I'm not talking about blowing a trumpet. I'm just talking about what is it in your life where you work, where you go to school, the people you hang out with, your family. Is there a plaque you could put on the wall somewhere in your house? We have a little plaque on the front door of our house. As for me and my house, we'll serve the Lord. It's not big, it's not ostentatious, but it makes a statement. Think about your life, my friend. Where's the locust? Where's the something that you can do that makes you different, that causes you to stand out? That causes the world to say, oh my goodness. What can you do at work, at school, in your exercise place, at home? What can you do that would be your wilderness, that would be your camel's hair robe, your leather belt, something that's different, that even though you're cowardly to speak, even though you're a little timid to confront, there is something that makes a message, I belong to Jesus. I can tell the message has affected you like it affected me. And so Christians, continue to pray, okay? Keep praying. Christians, you pray. What's going to be your locust? What's going to be your camel's hair outfit? What's going to be your leather belt? What's going to, what's going to be the thing that's different without even saying a word? It's going to cause people to say, oh my, here is a Christ follower.
And while you Christians pray, may I speak to you who are unbelievers? If you're not a believer, maybe something was said today in the music, in the message, or maybe somebody said something this week has caused you to say, I'm ready to follow Jesus. If that's the case, I'd like to lead you in a prayer. Now, this prayer doesn't save you. There's no magic in it. But it might help you pull your thoughts together. It might help you to focus. It might cause you to say, yes, this is what I want. And so if this prayer expresses the yearning of your heart, why don't you repeat it silently as I pray it out loud. Here it is. Dear Jesus, I am sorry for my sin. Please forgive me. Come live in my heart. I receive you as the master of my life. Amen.